Hi and welcome to another episode of Sharing Sweet Drama. And I think that this is going to be my most difficult one. Um, I've decided that today I'm going to make the suicide part two episode. And this is going to be about surviving suicide. What is it like if you are fully committed to not live anymore and then you wake up at the intensive care? Today is February 1st when I'm recording this and um, I know five years ago these were some of the darkest days in my life and um, it's almost five years ago actually when I woke up in the intensive care I think it was February 5th 2015 and uh, I know that this episode is hard for me because I haven't spoken about this I have spoken with some friends I have not been speaking like a full hour about this so um and I want you to know what if you have cancer you know what if you have cancer and everyone thinks you're gonna die and then you survive and people say fuck you asshole we were prepared that you were dying you know you're not supposed to be here anymore how the fuck can you scare the shit out of us and then stay we're not gonna be with you this is this is how I have been treated. Not by everyone, of course not, but by some. And I think you know the saying that they, if 100 people say that you're amazing, but you have one negative comment, that negative comment is what colors you, or that negative comment is what gets you. And I can say that for me, all the love and support I had throughout my life in different times and so on has been super, super important. And all the negativity, all the critique, you know, all the condemnation, all the guilt and shame and blame that I've been uh, exposed to that has most likely taken me down more than the positivity has lifted me up. This episode is not about me uh, putting any guilt or blame on anyone because everyone do and did exactly what they were supposed to do. And I think this, what I'm trying to, to get to and I hope we'll get to at the end is that there is no right or wrong. But I want you to give my I want to give you my story so you have an insight of how life is. Okay, so five years ago I was in such a dark place, you know. Um, I just separated from my my uh, second husband, and uh, it was a very very difficult separation. He just took a suitcase and left when I when I exposed him to lying for like the silliest time and I said, I've had it, it's enough, now it's enough. And then he just packed the suitcase after five and a half years and left. And he didn't return. 
I expected us to go to when I said, you know, this is enough. I'm not taking more shit. I thought we would go to therapy, that we would work on our relationship. But instead, he just left. And he left me with everything. He left me with the apartment. He left me with all his stuff. He left me with, you know, um, everything, all the bills, caring for, you know, he took his children. His children didn't really live with him like that. So I got my kids, you know, and the apartment and everything. I had to handle work and and money and financials and and my grief. And I did that for for a month, like full January. I try try to manage, and then I realized I can't do this. And I think February fifth or sixth, I decided I can't do this anymore. And I told you before, it's like this <clears throat> this road, this dark tunnel that gets darker and darker and darker and then you can't you can't go back there's no return and the thing is that i woke up at the intensive care and it's not like you commit suicide it's not like you have a severe suicide attempt when you are you know committed to not live anymore that you have a plan you don't have a backup plan. What if I survive? What am I going to do then? Okay, if I survive this suicide attempt, then I think I'll maybe I'll plan a trip to, to the Maldives in the spring. Or maybe I, I think I, I move if I survive. Or I, I just buy a dog. You know, you don't have a backup plan. And you don't think, this is also, at least I, I didn't think... What if, what if I wake up and I'm not okay? You know, what if I wake up and I have a brain damage or, you know, if I'm, yeah, something. You don't think. I just want you to know that when you commit suicide, you don't think about life after suicide because in your mind, there is no life after suicide. So you don't think about your parents or your children and how they're going to manage and see this and that. And you don't think about what's going to happen to your work and and your dogs. And, you know, you don't have a backup plan. And you definitely don't have a backup plan. What if I survive? At least I didn't. So when I woke up in the intensive care, I had one of my sisters. I have had two colleagues from work and I had three friends sitting there. No, two friends. So I had five beautiful women sitting there when I wake up. And I kind of, I wake up and I see them and I'm like, what is this? And then I fall back again into some kind of uh, unconsciousness. And then I wake up again. And that time, I know this is going to be emotional. I feel my voice is already quite strained and I hope you can bear it. I woke up. And then I'm awake. And then the doctor comes in. You know, when she sees that I'm awake, she says, okay, everyone, get out of here. And my friends and sisters, they leave the room. And she looks at me and she says, do you know what you have done? And I'm like, I I haven't spoken, you know, yet. I've been like unconscious for, I don't know, 12 hours, 15 hours, something. I haven't spoken and she's screaming at me. She's yelling. She said, do you know what you have done? Do you have any idea 
how close you were. And I'm like, what? Do you have any idea? You were seconds. I'm telling you, you were seconds to not be here, to not wake up here. Do you realize that? And I'm like, what? I want you to know this is important. Look me in the eye. Tell me that you understand what you've done. And I'm, okay, okay. And there I am, you know, a person just shouting at me, telling me what a dreadful thing I've just done and that she needs me to understand that I almost died. And I'm like, okay, okay. And then I fall back into unconsciousness. And I don't know if this is a procedure. I don't know if this is something they teach doctors. I don't know if this is like a routine they have that when a suicidal, you know, patient wakes up after suicide, you just tell her what a bad person she is. You know, I don't know what what you say when in Swedish we say you skäller ut någon. You know, when you just tell your someone to just fuck off. You know, and that was what she. That was what I heard when I woke up in in the intensive care. So she felt it was her job to tell me that you almost died. I want you to know that it was this close and. Uh, really, really shouting out loud to make me understand. And I I remember I was totally shocked. You know, I woke up. I didn't know where I was. She told all my friends and sisters to leave the room. And then she gave me this hard, hard lecture. And I just, I got scared, super, super scared. And, and these first days they are kind of floating in and out of each other we are moved from the intensive care we move to a different like uh, after I am okay you know so I can walk and talk and so on they move me to a kind of interim psychiatric ward somewhere in Stockholm I don't know where that is I went there with my sister she my sister was a darling really I went there with my sister and uh, <clears throat> she went home and she packed some stuff for me and we were there and she packed my computer, she packed my yoga mat, she packed my angel cards. And why did she do that? Because I woke up at the intensive care without, I didn't have anything, no toothbrush. It's not like, okay, I'm going to give birth to babies, so I have my bag packed. You know, you don't expect to come alive again, so you have nothing prepared. So she had been home packing up some stuff for me and my computer. And we stay there. I have one night's sleep. And in the morning, my colleague is coming because we are in the middle of a production. So we are in the middle of a a heavy work period, you know, and... When I wake up and after a day, I am like, okay, okay, I got to fix this, you know, I got to fix this for work. And just to understand that when you wake up after suicide, you don't have a plan. You don't have a plan to be there. But when you are there, you become totally, so you're so confused 
and you're so desperate to kind of fix things again because you know you fucked up big time. So you got to fix things. And one of the things I needed to fix was my work situation and be there for my colleagues. So my sister, uh, she got my computer and I asked my colleague, she was one of the ones who were at the hospital when I woke up, we're very, very close friends, if she could come and we could work an hour. And I can, I can so see, it's absurd. Here's a person who one and a half day ago committed suicide and now she wants to have a work meeting with her colleague at the psychiatric ward, you know, and she comes she does not, no one questions me, you know, no one of my close ones, they question what I need right now. <laughs> so she comes, she brings her computer, and we sit down and so on. And at that point, the doctor from this psychiatric ward comes into my room, you know, to check me out. And, and she, she's never met me before. And she looks at me and she said, what the fuck is this? And I'm like, what? What the fuck is this? Are you fucking stupid? I mean, what the fuck is the matter with you? Who the fuck do you think you am? Do you think this is kind of a workplace? You just committed suicide. Hey, this is so not okay. You are leaving and you close these computers and this is not okay. This is a mental institution. You committed suicide. You're not allowed to work. And she just snap and she went out and she banged the door and I was like <gasps> like yeah what the fuck but I got so and then I got pissed and then I got totally pissed and I just felt what is this what is this people coming here just tell me to fuck off and tell me I'm such a bad person and I was you know and my friend she went she left my sister came back or and I just felt like, what is this? How, how, how do people, how, is this how doctors are supposed to treat you? And I can see now, I want you to know that as a person who commits suicide, you are clueless. The days after, the weeks after, you are clueless because you failed, you know, you had something that you wanted to do. You had something that you needed to do and you failed. And you return to the place you were at before. But this is the thing. You don't return to the place you were at before. You return to a worse place. The place where I returned to was in a way much, much worse because now I had to carry the guilt and the shame for what I did. And the professionals around me, the two I've met, they were so clear about telling me what a bad person I was. I don't know if this is routine. I don't know if this happens to many people or everyone or if it's just me or if it was my personality and I know I've been judged a lot in my life because my outside appearance doesn't match my inside how I feel how I am 
So people have always thought I'm stronger, you know, I can take more. And uh, I honestly can't, you know. These first days... I had friends and family who broke up with me same day, you know. Um, two of my absolutely closest people, they never visited me in the hospital. They never called. They didn't see me for six months at least, maybe one and a half year, one of them. And I understand... And I said before, this is not about guilt and blame. I've come to realize it took, it took actually quite a few years for me to realize that, that we all have a relationship with suicide. We have a relationship with death. We have a relationship with losing people we love. And that relationship, that experience make us react And we react the way we need to do to protect ourselves. So my friends and family, the two people I'm talking about who cut me off and cut me off hard for a very, very long time, their fear, both when it comes to losing people they love in general and when it comes to losing me, that fear was so big One of them, she said, a year after, she said that if I am by your side now, you will feel supported and then you will need the confirmation from me so you're going to do it again. So I couldn't support you in your act because then I would um, trigger you to do it again. And I just felt like, I, I can't understand her point of view at all. I can't. But I understand that she has her point of view for a reason. Um, the other one, she said that when we spoke about this one and a half year later, so it took one year and a half, then she cried and she said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for leaving you. Sorry for not being there. But I couldn't. I just couldn't stand the thought of losing you, so I had to take you away. I had to remove you. I couldn't live with that pain, you know. So I was better off without you. And I understand that too. This is it's like what I talked about in the, in the episode of love and traumatized people, you know, how we avoid pain. And I think suicide is one of the biggest triggers for people when it comes to pain. Because so many of us have someone who has tried, who has not wanted to live. Some of us have people who have succeeded and are not here anymore. Parents, children, close ones. So I know the effect of it. The problem is that the effect of it makes the problem bigger, you know. So here too, I think it's so important to work on the healing part. You know, what connection do we have to suicide? And how can I heal that so I can be of a greater support to the close ones I have if they end up in a situation 
where they don't want to live anymore. Because I feel like I dedicate quite a lot of my time on a daily basis to support people who struggle with life joy and actually are contemplating about suicide. I I wouldn't say I coach them. I would say I am a, a, a human being in their life with experience. So they rely on me. They trust me that I have something to say. You know, when I say something, they listen because they know I've been there. And I think that this mentality that we have, that people who are suicidal or people who commit suicide and succeed, we stay away from them. We don't hang out with them. We kind of punish them. We blame them. They're going to work their whole entire life to prove themselves worthy of living. They're going to kind of be... Uh, we want to diagnose them as mentally unstable or, you know, to to really put them in a different box so we can treat them differently forever. Um, it's like that if you do that and you succeed or if you are this victim and you don't want to live, then you kind of, you fucked up so much so there's really no way back to 100% trust and stability. You're always going to be that, you know, accident waiting to happen. And that is not okay. It's not okay. Because what happens is that that view is going to trigger more mental illness. It's going to trigger more grief, more sadness. It's going to trigger more, you know, feelings of being alone and not supported. So for all of you who has not contemplated suicide, for all of you who has not walked down that dark road, you know, but you have people in your life who has and you have a difficulty with it, you have a difficulty how to handle, how to touch the topic, topic uh, you avoid or you feel you want to, want to distance yourself from, from them. I beg you from the bottom of my heart, I beg you, look into your own feelings. Look into what is your connection to death and loss. What is your connection to suicide? Is there a way I can heal this? Because the fact is that more and more and more and more and more people are contemplating suicide or actually killing themselves. This is the biggest, you know, reason of death between young people, 15 to 25. It's a growing, growing cause of death. And it's worldwide. It's not local, you know. There are some countries, you know, some kind of, uh, what shall I say, what is called communities or cultures where it's less. But in our society where I live, when I think where you live with your iPhone and your ability to listen to a podcast and so on, it's growing. And it's growing for every, every day that we 
are emotionally cut off. Us not talking about it, us not relating to each other, having this as something that is actually on the table. You know, it's so important that we begin to speak about it because if we don't bring light to things, you know, all the bad things, the really, really bad thing, pedophiles, for example, it happens in the dark. It's not on display. Everything that is hidden in the dark is not going to change. We have to, to make change happen, we have to bring light onto it. We have to speak about it. We have to look at where am I in this? And I'm so sorry. I'm so deeply, deeply, deeply sorry for all of you who has lost someone to suicide. I'm so sorry for all of you who have been contemplating it. I'm so sorry for all of us who has been doing it and failed. And I'm not sorry that I failed. And I'm not sorry that you failed because it means you are here. I am here and we can do something. This is the thing. Never, ever, since I woke up, never, ever, not even those first moments and days and when the doctors told me to fuck off, did I have the feeling like, why am I still here? Why am I not dead? It was never, and this is very, very strange, it was never in my mind the same sadness. I did not wake up to the same grief and sadness. I woke up to something different. And I can say, I have one sister. No, I'm going to cry. I have one sister. We had a really difficult childhood together. And that, that relationship, I love her so much. You know, I love her so much. And to imagine that I would love her this much, that I feel I would never, ever, ever want to put her in a situation where she feels compromised or where, you know, where I expose her or anything. So I'm not going to go into what we experienced as kids. But when I woke up in the hospital, she was there. And I'm so sorry, but this is, this is like the most... This has been one of my biggest, biggest, biggest childhood traumas. What we experienced together, her and I, for years. And when I woke up at the hospital, she, she was there. And now it's been five years. She never left me, you know. She never left me. And since that day, she has been there for me. Through thick and thin. You know, she she fixed everything for me. She fixed, you know, everything from divorce to moving apartments to... <laughs> getting rid of my ex-husband's things to me going to the, the meetings at the, at the hospital, to me managing my, my pills, you know, to me going back to work. 
she helped with my kids. She mediated with the people, you know, who didn't want to see me. And, and this was like, you know, I think what we experienced as children is, is a big reason why I ended up, as I did, you know, this traumatized. And when I woke up in the hospital, she was there. And from from that moment, I think this this general lack of support that I I lived through my life, you know, I told you before that the, the fathers of the kids they didn't pay child support, they were never present at their schools, and, you know, so on, and my family never supported me. I was always like the odd bird. I was always the one who was excluded in my family, and. And to, to to feel this support, to wake up, to, for me, it was like a second birth to wake up in the hospital and have five women sitting around my bed. You know, the way I came to, to, to this planet, I was not wanted, I was not loved. And there I had five people, five women sitting and praying for me, watching over me and... I think that changed my life. I think that really, I think that really from that moment changed my life. I woke up to something different. And since then, it's not been easy. It's been a really, really long struggle, especially the first two years. Because the first year, I had... My friends and family, these two people who who disconnected me with me, they were very close in my life before this. My kids, they disconnected with me, three of them, for at least six months. I I went to, and this is also, I did a lot of random, I did a lot of good stuff, you know. I began to live my life differently. I went to therapy and I I began to eat differently and, you know, care for myself differently and so on. For the first time in my life, I didn't live, you know, I was wi- without a relationship somehow. I've always been in and out of relationships. There's always been like something happening in my life on the love life side. And now I was alone. I was super, super alone. But I applied to go to like a therapy retreat. It was like a an advanced course, I thought. Then when I come to my first week, it turns out it's a training. And we are 40 people in this training. And I do the first, I do the first group. So it's like six weeks, one group per month I do the first group and on the second group the facilitator she she teaches us that when we have clients so I'm I'm just like okay so I'm now I'm going to be a, a holistic counselor I was like all good with that and that was just three months this now the second group was three months after my suicide attempt and and the facilitator she says it's very important when you take on a new client you have to do a background check so you have to check with them um, 
basic stuff we we learned a lot like we need to know what kind of resources do they have like do they have a work a relationship dog a house or nothing maybe if people don't have any resources we can't work with them because there's so much if it's a lot of trauma we need resources or is it a possibility to, to create reason? But we need to do a background checkup on them. And we also need to know a little about their background, she said. Uh, like me, for example, she said, I'm not working with uh, people who uh, have committed suicide or have eating disorders. And I'm like, okay. And then she start, continues to talk about you know, what we should do and don't, but we, if, you know, we, we have clients who have like our alcoholics or, uh, you know, have severe issues in this and that, um, we need to check, uh, are we okay to work with that issue? And she said, I'm not working with suicide and eating disorders, for example. And this person, I've been seeing her for 10 years. I've been in retreats with her for 10 years. Maybe, yeah, I don't know. Most likely, I maybe maybe spent three full months, sixty or ninety days together with this person. You know, assisting her or taking courses with her. You know, doing a lot of stuff, and I just felt like, what is this? So I raised my arm and I said, and she said, yes, Shama, and I said. I just want to say that you right now, you disqualified me from all the work you and I have done together for the past 10 years. And she said, what? And then I said, I had a severe eating disorder like for seven years when I was young. And I have actually tried to commit suicide three times in my life. And the last time was three months ago. And she's, she's, you know, she becomes all pale. <laughs> it's ironic. We're talking about background checkup. No one did any background checkup of me, obviously, because I'm not a liar. I don't lie. And she got pale and she couldn't speak. And she's like, okay, uh, can you tell us about this? And then I told them. I also told them that I went to a good friend of theirs in this network that I am. And I had therapy sessions with him afterwards. And I told, spoke spoke with him. And I asked if I could attend this training, yes or no, or he th if he thought it was a stupid idea. And he said, Shama, I think that is the best way, the best thing you can do. Really get back on the horse, just continue with your life, go to this training. And then he said, honestly, Shama, people kill themselves every day, just very, very slow. What you did was just like a much faster and humane way. There's no judgment here, you know. People treat themselves like shit every day. Everyone is going for a slow suicide. And he said, you just go to this course. And he is one of their best friends, you know. There's like a facilitator, therapist kind of team and they are best friends. And he said, of course, you should go. And I told her also that I've spoken to him and he recommended me to go. So because she asked, why didn't you tell us? And I said, 
you know, no one asked. No one asked for my background for this course. No one asked anything. And I went to see this person. He, he said, go, absolutely. So I didn't think I needed What this turned out to was they had to cut the group. They had to stop everything, you know, every, everything. Everyone in this group, we're talking about 40 people becoming therapists, 40 people. One girl, she dropped out. She stopped going to the, to the class, you know, she quit the education. Um, a few guys began to bully me began to treat me really, really, really bad. Um, a lot of, except my two close, close friends, a lot of people took distance to me. <laughs> And um, for the next group, I was not allowed to come back. We don't want you to come back, Shama. And I got... And I'm so grateful for, you know... Whatever new in me there was, I'm really grateful for them being such assholes as they were. Uh, and I'm really grateful because that kicked in some power in me. And I said, this is not okay. Do you know what? This is not okay. The way you're treating me now, the way you're cutting me off, the way you're discriminating me is not okay. And I'm going. I just want, I just want you to know, I see you in two weeks. And I went. And this course was like in Portugal, I live in Sweden, so it was a flight, it was going there, it was all these hostile people who really hated me by this time, because now we're entering the third group. And they said, okay, the facilities say, okay, we need to have a meeting with you immediately when you come, okay. And I found out later that this facilitator, her mom killed herself, so she couldn't handle it. The, the girl who dropped off from the training, she, her best friend killed herself, so she couldn't handle it. All the other people who began to bully me and uh, treat me really bad, every one of them had some connection to a person who had committed suicide. So this third group, I was so bullied. The situation reminded me so much of my childhood. And at one point... I just felt like this growing energy, this growing power of this is not okay. This is not this is not the way. Whatever is happening here, this is not the way. And I remember uh, we were in a session, a big session, this big group. And then one guy, especially one guy bullied me and was very, very hostile. He said, I want to share. So he went up front in the group and he said, I just want to share. I think, I think it's so uh, disgusting that Shama is here. I think it's not right that we have to suffer through this, her being here and this and that. And he says a lot of stuff in front of the group. And I'm sitting there. It's not like I'm not in the room. And I just feel this anger coming. This anger coming. It's coming, coming. And when he's done, I raise my arm and said, I want to share too. And I go up there and I stand in front of the group. And I just tell them. I, I can't remember the words. But I just tell them in a very clear, direct voice. I just tell them that... I want you to know that my anger, the anger I feel, it's so big, you know, 
My anger is bigger than Portugal. It's bigger than Europe. It's bigger than the whole fucking planet. And I want you all to know that if you have been afraid of me before, it's nothing compared to what you should be from now on. Because I am. And I just told them all the things that I am and all the powers I had and how I could erase them from the planet if I would use my powers. So I just want you all to know, don't fuck with me again. And this attitude of yours, whatever you're doing here right now, you just stop or something really bad is going to happen. And I was, you know, and a few of my friends, because I had some really great friends, male friends here. One of them, he came up to me afterwards and he just hugged me and said, what the fuck, Shama, what was that? What was that? I felt, uh, you know, I watched the group and I just saw all the men in the group. They moved when you, when you were telling them, they moved. If, I mean, if there wouldn't have been a wall at the back, they would fucking have moved to Sweden they were just like take us away from here and from that moment when I stood in my powers and I said when I was no longer a victim for them to question and talk about above my head and discuss around when I stood my grounds when I told them you don't fuck with me now it's enough I've had enough it's you know don't fuck with me anymore everything shifted you know it was like Every, everyone was so scared that I would kind of do it again instantaneously now. Jump, snap, she's going to kill herself. I don't know, but this fear that comes around suicide, how people react, we can't judge anyone because everyone has their own private personal experience around it. But I feel it's so important to touch this topic because to make a change happen, we must heal our wounds. And it's not only, sorry to say, it's not only people who are suicidal or don't want to live or are struggling with mental health issues that must heal. It's also all of you who can't handle that. Do you understand me? We can't make a change. The ones suffering can't make the change because they are alone. All of us who have the ability, you know, who have lives where we do want to live, who have good lives, where we can spread light and joy. We have to work on our issues. Why can't we handle people's pain? You know, why can't we handle other people becoming victims? Why can't we handle people not wanting to live? We have to work on that because that's the way we're going to make a change. It's not like people are going to stop killing themselves. People are doing it more and more and more and more and more. In my family, we are four. In my close, you know, in two generations, four of us has been struggling with these issues. And that's a lot for being one family. And I think that many, many, many of us have the same, you know, so, 
Anyhow, I'm just going to check my time. Okay, I have a little more time, so I'm going to take a cup of tea. I'm so emotional around this, and I hope you forgive me. I hope I'm not pushing it too far, uh, because this happened to me, and I experienced it, and it's very, very difficult, and I really want to make a change happen. Um, so that's why I'm so, uh, what do you say, I have severe pain in my belly now. Which, sorry, which means that I know I'm touching some something that is very important and also unhealed in me. It's good for me to talk about this. It's good for me to put it out in words. So I continue this training. I, I, um, I finish it. So all of a sudden I'm a, a holistic counselor. I'm still struggling with my life a big part of my struggle is to prove to other people that I'm okay it's it's to prove to other people that I can be alone it's to prove to other people I'm not going to do it again it's to prove to other people they don't have to worry about me that's like a full-time job I'm not able to work I guess I have some kind of a burnout I can't work. Whenever I sit in front of my computer, I, and I've always been like, not workaholic, but I worked a lot and I have such a high capacity and now I had no capacity. So to, I, I've, I've been like this person who can work four hours, uh, you know, do an eight hour shift on four hours. And I've been super proud about that. And now it was like, if I left my email and swapped program and went to Word to, to create a document or something, then I I lost track. I didn't know why I did that. So I could never connect the dots. So it was like in my computer when I swapped programs, it was like I exited a door and I ended up in a place where I didn't know why am I here? Why did I change to Photoshop? And I could not remember what program, you know, made me take that action. So it was really, really um, impossible for me to work. I got an email. I needed to do something. I, As I could read, I could see the instructions. So I did what I was supposed to do. But when I left the email, I lost it. It wasn't with me anymore. So it was impossible for me to work. I also had a lot to do. I had to move, you know, pack up the whole apartment. I had to get a new apartment, of course. I had to sell our summer house. You know, my ex-husband, he just disappeared. He didn't take responsibility for anything. So I had a lot of things to do. And I had a lot of support from my friends. My, my children. And this is also, of course... As they have a mother who is, for them, not reliable, they also had this, we don't want to be with you. They punished me hard, really, really hard. When my sister had her 50th birthday one year and a half late, uh, no, sorry, eight months later, they bullied me. Uh, we were together uh, at the summer house having a party and... And my sister, the one who was so been so kind and supportive to me, she said, Shama, I 
don't like the way your kids treat you. It's not okay for me how they treat you, how they talk you down every sentence, how they expose you, how they tell you you're a bad person. I really can't stand the way they treat you. I think it's... And and the sad thing is that her kids, they also saw it and they also felt this is not okay. So that period in our lives that created a distance between her children and my children because her children felt my children were so mean to me. So it was really, really difficult times. I feel the consequences after. When I was, I was, I spent three weeks in a mental uh, hospital, you know, locked up. And uh, I'm lying. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. (laughs) I did not spend three weeks there. I spent one week there because they couldn't keep me for longer. They had no space. So I wanted to stay longer, but they kicked me out. That was it. I really wanted to stay and, you know, kind of heal. But so I was, uh, anyhow, I was advised a psychiatric I don't know. I don't never know the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatric person, whatever. Whatever. So I had to go and see someone at the hospital, like a head of this hospital. He was the one who kind of diagnosed all the patients coming in and the suicidal ones. And he, when I went there, and he was ice cold person. This is also so terrible that the doctors I met in this, they have been ice-cold people. And I think that suicide is like on the lowest, if you rank diagnosis, if you rank things, I think suicide is like, that's hell, that's the, that's crawling in the dirt. And if you're there, the treatment you get is according to that level, you know, if you have like a higher diagnosis, if you're schizophrenic or I don't know, I, I have no idea, but I just feel like to be an ex-suicide attempt is like the worst, is, is like you cannot be treated any worse. And when I came to see him, he just came in and he just read my journal and said, yeah, I can see that you have three suicide attempts here and da-da-da-da-da and that you were seconds from dying and da-da-da-da-da. So I want you to fill in these forms. And I'm like, what? If, if I felt like whenever I met someone and someone told me something that those days, I was, what? <laughs> I don't get it. I was really walking clueless, walking around clueless. And he said, yeah, please fill in these forms. And they were like massive. It was maybe 10 papers, double-sided with questions. And he put me in a different room and I was beginning to fill out these forms. And after a while, you know, the questions became weirder and weirder and weirder. And we were talking about hurting other children as a child, you know, uh, ripping off the legs from from bugs and punishing dogs and cats. And and what about fire? How did I handle fire? How did I did I suffocate people? Did I do this and that? And I was, what is this? Is this like uh, the cuckoo's nest? And 
So I tried to fill in, but I couldn't manage. And then he came back and said, are you ready? And I said, yeah, I guess I am. I can't, I can't finish. And he said, well, you've got to finish. And I said, do you know what? I don't have to finish. This is, this is, this is humiliating. And he said, do you know what? I need to put a diagnosis on you. So please, can you fill in the forms? And I'm, I don't think I have a diagnosis, you know? And he was, of course you do. Why else would you commit suicide? And I'm like, because I'm, because I'm so full of grief and sadness. And he said, do you know what? Do you know how many years I worked in this field? And I don't know if he said 20, 25 or 30 or whatever. It was a lot of years. And he said, during these years, I never failed to diagnose a person. And I'm sure I'm going to succeed with you too. And I just, I stood up, took my bag, and I left to never return. And I just felt like, okay, this is the third doctor that I see who treats me so bad, who is so rude to me. And I I just, you know, I felt I can't be on this side of the fence. I can't be. I will never be okay. If I hang out with these people and do what they tell me to do, I'm fucked. So I left. I continued with the medication I was on, the antidepressants, and they were super good for me. You know, I began to wake up in the morning feeling okay. There was a shift in my chemistry. I began to, you know, really work, work really, really hard with supplements and exercise and treating myself well and changing my life, you know. Uh, I surrounded myself with my girlfriends my positive girlfriends, the ones who loved me. Um, and I just decided I'm not going back to that, you know, to these doctors. That's not the way to healing. That is not the way. I began to research. I realized that if you try to commit suicide twice or more, the, your your cause of death is suicide by 100%. It scared the shit out of me. I felt like I don't want to be that part of the statistics, you know. I really, I I was so scared. I called my sister, I called a friend, and really said, I, I, what shall I do, what shall I do, what shall I do? It was like suicide was a constant threat over my head that I was trying to avoid. It was as if suicide was a constant threat to my relationship that I needed to prove to other people that they don't have to worry about me, you know. It was such pressure to continue living after this because of the way I was treated, you know. And I feel that we must take on a different approach you know, when it comes to suicide, what is it? It's the same. We need to take on a different approach when it comes to addicts. What do people who commit suicide need, you know? And for me, this, I have a dream. And for all of you with lots of money, you know, can you help me fulfill my dream? I want to create walking clinics for people who are struggling with mental 
health, you know, mental issues. I want to have a place to go where you are met with kindness and understanding when there is like a concrete, when you're like, this is okay, good. This is how we do it. We do your blood test. We do your examination. We check up your background. You tell us your story. We really check you in and we treat you. And here is the gym. Here's the coffee place. Here are the groups for sharings. Here are the 12 steps meeting. Here's the yoga. Here's the meditation, you know, a facility, a clinic with everything good where people who are mentally ill are treated well. And they're treated with love and kindness and support and understanding that something took you here. Something brought you to us. And that something has not been easy. And we are here to support you. Because what I find or what I found was that the something that brought me to suicide, no one gave a fuck about. The fact that I tried to commit suicide was the lowest kind of action to take. And now you need to suffer for putting your friends and family into this situation. And now you need to prove yourself for the rest of your life that you can be trusted, which we will never trust you anyhow, even if you are trustworthy. And we're going to medicate you and put the diagnosis on you so we can feel safe. Okay? You jeopardized our lives and now you have to take the steps for us to feel safe. Okay? That's your job from now. And actually, this is not healing the world. This is not helping anyone. I really feel when I, when I talk about this that I would like to create centers, you know, I would like to create the first walking clinic, the first center in Stockholm, where people who are struggling can come and be met with kindness and love and support. When we take care of everything that is needed to be taken care of, you know, because a suicidal person has a chemistry inside that is totally crazy, you know. There's so much... There's most likely addiction connection connected to it also. There can be a lot of abuse. There can be a lot of, you know, um, traumas that therapy can work on. There's so much we can do. And to have this, you know, there's no coincidence that all the artists, you know, artists are creative people. What's creative people doing? They create often out of pain, you know, and... There's so much drugs, there's so much, in young people now these days, there's so much drugs, and drugs is not elevating our moods, you know. There's so much we can do just when it comes to information, just when it comes to information of how things affect our bodies, if we're not feeling happy, if we're feeling low, how can we change that? Just with what we eat and drink and move and think, you know, what happened to you as children? People who commit suicide, they did not have like a, a super perfect, bright childhood, uh, everything function. Mom and dad loved me and I was never bullied kind of growing up. 
something happened to you. And it's also, it can be a life crisis, you know, as an adult, when you lose it. And what, when I say when you lose it, it's not like you go from crisis to suicide. Something happens in your brain. Something happens chemically. Your serotonin levels drop. Something happens that makes you take these steps. And I think they can happen snap really fast as they do for me. Or they can go on for years and years and years. You know, I have a friend. I had a friend because he committed suicide a couple of years back. And he was struggling for as long as, you know, people can remember with his mental health. And he did a lot of drugs a lot of drugs and then he went began to medicate and the medication didn't turn out well so one day he committed suicide and um, that was two years ago I know that things that could could have been different for him and I know his childhood was not okay you know totally totally not okay so there is so much that could have been done, you know, when he was young, when he was maybe 18, instead of him becoming 40 and then doing it, struggling his whole life. And I'm thinking all these young people, 15 to 25, are we just going to say it's okay? Are we not going to offer them somewhere to go? Are we not going to do something? And then we are going to be, as parents, we're going to be as marchers, you know, and we're going to dedicate our whole life to this loss. Our lives get totally fucked up, you know. I know also so many as mothers and fathers who can't continue with their life when, when they lose a child to suicide. It's like, it's not as cancer Cancer is an okay disease to lose someone in. Cancer is an okay disease to die in. Suicide is not okay. Who gives a fuck? People die. That's the important thing, not how they die. And I'm so, I'm so, I'm so tired of the way we kind of treat suicide as something else than cancer or stroke or you know it's it's just one way people die and what's really really sad that the struggle before you know the mental the misery the pain is so massive and there is so much we can do and I'm not talking about helplines. I'm not talking about lobbying. I'm not talking about, you know, uh, I'm talking about real action. You have to take action. And action is, I'm saying, okay, basic, what I do so far during these five years, I think maybe 20 suicidal women have contacted me. Not one single one of them has committed suicide. I'm not saying that is because of me, but I think that they see me, they watch me on Instagram, and I give them advice. What did I do? What worked for me? You know, and it's very, very direct actions. You know, it's, uh, there are two things I ask at the beginning. Um, what happened to you as a child? And are you an addict of some kind? What's your addiction? How do you escape? 
And the thing is that as long as people drink and do drugs, there's not much to do. Of course, there's a lot to do, but still, you can't have this massive change that I'm seeking. You have to get off the drugs. You have to get off the alcohol. You have to get off the food. You know, you have to get off the escape to kind of be able to open up and lift on some lids, you know. So I always advise people, especially if they're far from here, far, far from me, to, to attend 12-step meetings, you know, to find a group because we also like community. And then they tell me their story. And this is like nine times out of ten, they all say I had a good childhood. And then they begin to reveal, reveal things that, yes, my my dad was an alcoholic, but he only drank at the weekends. And my mom, she was a stay-at-home wife and she was depressed. She was quite cold and so on. And then things begin to unravel. And I'm like, okay, so this is your happy childhood. People are not aware that things happen to them as children, that they have a reason behind the drinking. And I think whenever I say that, when when I tell them, do you know what? You have all the reason in the world to do drugs. I feel you. And the thing is that if you want to have a good life, if you want to come out of these suicidal thoughts, you have to first compassion. Yes, you have your reason. And then you got to stop because from there we can work. And they listen to me. I don't know how many have stop drinking. Mostly it's, it's alcohol for, for the ones contacting me. But I think at least 12 or 13 are sober and their lives have changed. So it can be that easy to go from suicidal to someone saying, hey, you have a drinking problem and you have your reasons to drink because the need of escape is big. But to be able to change something, we got to start with that. And from that, we can work forward, you know. So what I'm saying is that enough of treating people who don't feel okay bad enough of treating suicidal you know survivors what do you say survivors of suicide to treat them bad it's not okay to i have someone who said in a work situation she said she couldn't tell me what she really thought because she would be afraid that I would take it in a negative way and then I would become sad and kill myself and I'm like okay this is not working there's a problem here and to be honest you own the problem I don't I understand how your mind how your brain is functioning it's ruining our work relationship and you are kind of putting it on me and not taking action on your behalf and changing that so question is what is your relationship to suicide what is your relationship to people dying you know you got to work on that i'm sorry i'm okay you know nothing you can do or say would ever push me over the edge I'm sorry, but you are not that important in my life, honestly. And whatever makes you mess up our work situation like this, you got to deal with it. And I have become so much more direct and hard now because I realize that I am not the problem all the time. This is it. Before, I used to take on the blame for everything, especially the first two years. 
I took on the blame. Okay, I have to do better. I have to change. I have to be more reliable. I have to stop with this. I have to begin with this. I have to do this and that. And it was exhausting. You know, I could never focus on myself, what I needed. I had to focus on what other people needed to be safe around me. And that is not okay. You know, we can't live like that. So for all of you who think this episode is so difficult, who kind of, I don't know, hates me talking about it or kind of feels that this is important or whatever, I just feel that I encourage you to look into your relationship with death and suicide and how can you become a more compassionate person How can you become more supportive to others? Because this is crippling you in your life. I want to be a person, you know. I want to be a person where you can come to me and say, Hey, Shama, I don't want to live. Hey, Shama, I'm doing drugs. Hey, Shama, I hit my child. Hey, Shama, you know, I want to take your shit and say, Okay, I feel you. But I don't want to become personal about it. I don't want to become entangled in your, you know, things. I want to become, you know, I want to be a supportive rock. I want to be stable, steady, and, you know, be someone you can consult and come to and share with without having any fears that you're going to rock my boat. And this is what I'm working on. I'm working on my mental health. I'm working on myself to be that rock, to be that boat for me so I can be that for you. I am kind of preparing myself for life to happen so I can be a person you can rely on. And I think it's important that we all are because life is going to continue to happen. I'm sorry to say, but some of you who listen right now, someone you love is going to commit suicide. Someone you love has today a wish not to live. Maybe you do. I don't know. We can't neglect this. We can't, you know, disregard it. We can't pretend it's not happening. And we can't pretend it's not our problem because we are the other side of the coin. And it's so, I think it's amazing that I consider myself to be one of you. I'm not one of, you know, I'm no longer a person who doesn't want to live. I'm a person who wants to live and I want to support every human being in that. I really, really, really do. And I know the way to do it is to heal my own wounds. The way to do it is to heal myself so I can handle life, so I can handle your pain, so I can handle your losses without me going down, you know. Because this is the thing, we only react in a hostile, negative, scared way when something triggers our own wounds. So, yeah, there's so much I can say about this. There's so much. I mean, during these years, so much shit has happened to me. I have, you know, I have felt guilt-tripped so many times. I have been accused. I have been put down. And I can just say that every time it happens, in in the beginning, I got really sad. I felt like a victim, I had this give up feeling, but now these days you don't get to me any longer, you know. I feel more sad for you, you know. People who treat other people bad, it's because you are suffering. It's not because they are bad people. So, 
I come to a point in my life where five years later, I don't think people around me are afraid that I'm going to kill myself. I can at times be scared when I go down, when I become anxious, something happens to me and I feel because I'm not, I'm not 100% sure how low I can go without coming up fast. So whenever I feel I'm dropping from my, my constant eight to seven to six, I call a friend, I call my sister and I'm say, hey, this happened to me last week, this guy we broke up or, you know, this happened to me at work and I feel low. And uh, I just want you to know that it's not, you know, there's no cow on the ice yet, but I just want you to know so you can check in with me. And they appreciate it. My sister appreciates it a lot. And she wants to know, you know, she wants to be in rapport with me. She wants to know that where I'm at, then I'm good and so on. And I know that they love when they can just disregard me and not kind of have sleep with an eye open. And uh, I think no one should have that. It's really hard to have that type of relationship where you feel you worry for someone I don't want my my kids or my sisters or my family to worry about me. And that means I have to take such good care of me every day. I have to really, really care for myself every day. I have to cultivate this self-love track that I was absolutely clueless about until five years ago. I have to cultivate it. I have to elevate it. I have to really th- think and feel what makes me happy, what makes my heart jump you know and find that because uh, it's very very important to me it's very very important to me that I'm happy with myself you know that I like that I enjoy what I'm doing that I feel like hey you are a good person to hang around and so I work on that and I feel for for all of us with fears and anxiety and worry and so we got to work on that because when we work on ourselves we can handle life and I'm sure that there's a lot of healing needed you know to be better support to people who are struggling you know I'm not saying that other people are anyone's responsibility that's like a cliche you say you can't take responsibility for other people um But honestly, in reality, that's not true. You know, when my kids suffer, when they are in pain, I feel absolutely responsible. I feel it's my job to support them. It's like really, it's in my core, it's in my DNA. These are my children. If my friends or sisters have something, I feel I want to go there. I want to support them. And... If someone dies, if we lose someone to suicide, it's never our fault, you know. It's not like because of you or something. It's not that responsibility I'm talking about. I'm talking about being a human being to other human beings and being supportive and being in a community of other people and feeling like, you know... It's building something by healing ourselves... We can build a place where it's easier to not be happy and successful all the time. Where it's easier, you know, to... It's a, it's okay that you are not on a constant date. It's okay that you are on a two or three because we can handle it. 
You know, we feel you, we see you. Come over, have a cup of tea, have a hug, stay over, you know. Sleep in my bed for a few nights. I see you and I can handle it. That's the kind of community I would like us to create. You know, to heal ourselves so we can be for each other. That's what I would want to create. So it's always so hard to end this. This is suicide episode two. For sure, there are going to be more. For sure. And um, I hope I'm not putting any blame on anyone. Because guilt and blame and shame are actually not true. It's not the truth about anything. The only thing that is true, you know, if there's fear... You come with guilt and blame and shame. They go together. But if there's love and compassion, they just disappear. So I'm saying this. All I'm telling today is with tremendous love for all of humanity. And I wish us all to support ourselves and others in a better way, you know. And uh, I'm just sharing my experience of suicide and how difficult it was Um to wake up afterwards because you don't have a plan. Yeah, and you actually wake up to a worse place. So, in general, more love and care, less fear. Fear, guilt, shame, blame doesn't belong to suicide. Love and care and support does. That's, that's, that's more or less, that's my final words. Feelings that go with suicide is love and support and compassion. Okay, beautiful people. This was, this was really tough on me. Really, really tough on me. But I hope that we together can make a change. If you have any really, really wealthy people, you know someone, I know... This is so sad. I know so many rich people and they don't give, they don't care much about others, unfortunately. I don't know what it costs to create a walking clinic, a center, you know, like this. I would like to start the first one in Stockholm. But if you have know anyone who would like to, to, to finance this, please tell them to send me an email. I would, it would be my pleasure, really, to do this. And I think if we can do one in Stockholm, it can be a pilot and then we can just create them in every city all over the world and we can make a big, big, big change. My email address for all these general, you know, angels who are going to email me is shamaperson at gmail.com. You can always, always send me a voice note, voice message on Instagram. I love it. You know, I love it. And any feedback you have, just bring it my way. Okay, I wish you all a lovely morning, day, evening, wherever you are at. And thank you, thank you, thank you so much for listening to me. Okay, peace.